well, good morning, Eagle Heights. I was over talking to some of our youth, and they were showing me <laughs> oh, how their sleep app had recorded three hours of sleep. Uh, and I'm like going, and they're excited, but they're bragging about it. And I'm like going, if that were me, I would be crying and taking a nap on the front pew. So adults, those of you whose app says three hours of sleep, go ahead and meditate right now. We're going to let you. Use this service to catch up before the Lord in prayer and rest. So you have earned it, and we really, really appreciate it. Did you guys notice how Debo started? He kind of slurred his words at the beginning. And I'm thinking, if I didn't know there was a weekend that happened, there would be a problem here that we would have to address because he looked tired. And I'm just so thankful for Debo and Shelly and all of our workers and uh, our students especially, man. God is blessing us. And guys, I, I want to do something before we start. Uh, I want us to pray. I want us to prepare our hearts. I appreciate Mike praying. It's not that my prayer is special. I just feel the need that we need to start this morning with prayer. Um, so we're going to do two things. We're going to thank God for the blessings he's given us. And then we're going to ask God to open our heart, mind, and soul so he can teach us his word today through his spirit. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for your blessings. Uh, this weekend, hearing of two salvations, Father, Lord, amazingly, miracles happened, rebirth happened, uh, the first fruits of salvation have happened. Lord, you're the firstborn from the dead. We're going to learn that in a few weeks, which means we too can be born again. We can overcome the grave. We can have hope past death. You hold the keys to death and the grave. And Father, this weekend, two of our students we're rescued from both. We celebrate you. We honor that. We had nothing to do with that, God. We prayed for it. We facilitated it. We had conversations about it. But Father, you drew them. You gave them faith. You convicted them, and they said yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you for visiting with us this weekend. We are honored for what you've done. All that work was not in vain. We see it happening. God, we thank you for those who are continuing to have conversations. Bless them. Now, Father, as we come to this book, open our eyes. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know you better and that we may see the truth of what's in front of us. In your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 1 as we go straight into uh, the book of Revelation. You know, I was preparing for this and I was thinking back when I was in college, and we got to speak at a lot of different locations, my friends and I, and I had a good friend that was very gifted at worship, and he was leading an FCA leadership weekend, and, uh, he, and if, you, if you did that in college, you understand you, you usually got out of class and you just ran to that location. Well, he was a little bit late. Uh, he had a late afternoon class on Friday. He ran up there, walked in, and the leadership team had already kind of met, and they were actually in the yard throwing a football around. So he jumps in there and starts playing with them, and uh, he got introduced to the two guys he'd be sharing the stage with that weekend, two leaders that would be speaking, and they got to talking, and they were, as they were doing it, they were just throwing the football and talking, and he noticed they were pretty good at football, and he asked them, he said, are, 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 do you guys play football? And they go, yeah. He goes, are you any good? And they both went, well, we're okay. And they kept talking, anything you think about it, and then that night, they were on stage, and they began to introduce everybody. And he said, lo and behold, the first guy that's speaking gets up there and they do this long introduction. And they said, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you Howard Twilley. Now, some of you may not know who that is. Howard Twilley was a wide receiver for the Miami Dolphins, future pro, potential pro bowler or Hall of Famer. Then the next guy gets up. 
Introduce him. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you Steve Largent. Now, that may ring a bell with you. Steve Largent was a wide receiver for the Seahawks. Is definitely going to be a Hall of Famer. And he sort of sunk in his chair and he said, I just asked Howard Tully and Steve Largent if they're any good at football. You know, my friend, it was funny. As we were talking, it, it dawned on me. And as I thought back to that story, it dawned on me. The more information he had about them, the more the picture of them changed. The same thing that happened to my friend is going to happen with us in Revelation. Because, guys, most of us, when we think about Jesus, we put him in the scope of the Gospels of his time on earth. And there's nothing wrong with that. He is our example. He is our Messiah. He is our Savior. He has earned everything that he has. But we must understand something. Understanding him in that vein is fine. But most of us just define him by that alone. We see him as our ever-present help. We see him as our intercessor. We see him as the person who provides us grace and mercy. But we don't broaden that picture. And in Revelation... That picture needs to be broadened. Because you see, it's very important that we completely understand that while he was on this earth, his humanity was, or his humanity masked his divinity. But now that's reversed. See, now his divinity is completely shining, unfettered, unhindered, in full strength. There are not, there's nothing standing between us and the pure image of his absolute divinity. No attributes, no nature, no character withheld. Matter of fact, the whole reason the book of Revelation was written was to invite you and I into a very important, a very important discovery. Let's see what Jesus, why Jesus wrote it and what it's about. We're just going to read verse 1. It's all we're going to read today because we can't get past the first phrase without unpacking it and understand exactly what we're stepping in. Notice what it says. Excuse me, stepping into. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which soon, which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Now, now understand something. I want you to see the progression here. Notice where this came from. It came from God. Went to Jesus given to angels, given to John, to give to who? Look at the text. His bondservants. Stop right there. This letter is not written for the world. It's not written for lost people. It's not written for anyone else but his church. It's written to you. If you're his child, this letter is here, and Christ is inviting us to something. Notice the very first phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He wants you to see himself as he is. He is going to pull back the cover, and you're going to see Jesus in a way you've never seen him before. That's the whole purpose of the book. Because revelation is more about the unveiling of Jesus than his return. The revelation is more about the unveiling of Jesus than his return. Matter of fact, you can't start the book without that very first phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we need to stop and understand exactly what the definition of revelation means. Just a basic definition means to uncover, to disclose, to unveil. Now, understand something. 
That alone tells us that something is covered, something is closed, and something is veiled. That there's something here that we haven't seen. There's something here we don't know. There's something here that's not disclosed. And unless someone removes that, unless the veil is pulled back, unless it's opened up, we can never see it. And if we can't see it, we cannot understand it. So Revelation is about one simple part where Christ is being unveiled to his church, his nature, his character. We're going to see Jesus in a whole new light. Now, that's a simple definition, but we need a description of that revelation. It's not enough to say, okay, this is what it is. But let's look at it and understand what it really means. We see Jesus appearing and coming to earth twice. The first one is his incarnation. That's when Christ became a man. That's when God put on flesh, fully man, fully God. Absolutely man, absolutely God. That's what it means. And there's a word that's associated with both his incarnation, his coming the first time, and his return the second time. It's the word appear. Now, believe it or not, being the same English word, it's two different Greek words. When it's talking about Jesus' incarnation, and it uses the word appear, the word means this, a partial disclosure, a partial revelation, a partial unveiling. So that when Jesus Christ came, we didn't learn everything there is to know about Jesus Christ. He revealed enough. He revealed certain things. He revealed things that we needed to know in that moment so we could trust Him as Messiah, Lord, and Savior. Because that's what He revealed. See, as Messiah, it's very clear that He proved Himself to be the Messiah through prophetic fulfillment. He fulfilled all the prophecies that are related to the Messiah. Personal declaration. He declared himself to be Lord. He didn't let other people just say it. He confirmed that. He told the woman at the well, I am the Messiah, the one you're looking at. I am he. I'm the one you're looking for. We see it through miraculous signs. There are certain miraculous signs that would be associated with the Messiah. He did them all. We also see it through divine affirmation. God the Father, how many times? At least three said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Here we have God the Father. We have the Holy Spirit landing upon His shoulder. And beyond that, we have eyewitness confirmation from His birth to His ministry to His death to His resurrection to His ascension. There's consistent eyewitness, multiple eyewitness testimony proving He is the Messiah. So we know that the Messiahship is confirmed those ways. We also know that he's Savior. He said himself, I've come to die for the sins of man, which he did. Now, all of it was confirmed and validated when he was declared Lord as his resurrection. See, when he came out of that grave, everything was confirmed. The Messiahship, him being Savior, him being Lord. All of it was confirmed. That's what was revealed. But... That word appear when it's associated with the incarnation is simply this, partially. We didn't get the full picture. But when we talk about the return of Christ, now let me stop right there, guys. Let me establish this now. Most of us, when we think of the return of Christ, we automatically substitute the word rapture. That is not the return of Christ. The return of Christ is Revelation 19, when the king comes. When the God of the universe steps back on this earth. When the king is here to establish his eternal kingdom. 
That's that moment. Separate those two in your mind. I will not confuse them. I will say return, and I will talk about rapture. They're two different events. Two different events. And we will talk about those. But the return is Revelation 19. Now, when it talks about the return, it's a different Greek word when it says appear. It means full disclosure. It means nothing is withheld. It means that on that day when Christ sets foot on this earth, that he will arrive in full glory. Now stop right there, and I need you to concentrate and understand this. God's full glory is always described as light, radiating light. But understand about this light, it's not just illuminating. It penetrates. It goes inside. It opens up. You cannot hide from him in any way. Now, now understand what that means. When the light of Christ comes, all darkness is driven away. Think about that. In that moment, a person whose mind has been darkened by sin, whose heart has been darkened by sin, whose will has been darkened by sin, it's all going to be immediately removed. And all of us will be laid bare before him. No one can hide in the presence of the living God. That's why Paul calls him a consuming fire. That's why John falls at his feet later on in this book. And we will see that as we continue to study and we continue to go forward. And on that day, that event, Christ will be seen by everyone who's ever lived for who he really is. You know what that day is called? It's called the day of his glorious appearing. On the, for the believer, that's going to be a day of celebration, guys. For the believer, it is a day of incredible power. Because on that day, our king is returning. On that day, every promise is being fulfilled. Life swallows death. Truth replaces lies. Innocence replaces sin. Evil is judged. Matter of fact, it's such an exciting day. Look what Paul said about it. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I believed in, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted him until that day. What day? The day of his glorious return. He said, I'm so looking forward to that day. It's going to be such a day of overwhelming celebration for the believer, because peace, justice are getting ready to reign. So for the believer, it's a day of celebration. For for the unbeliever, it's not. It's a day of condemnation. It, it, it's the day where Jesus is absolutely clearly seen. He cannot be dismissed. He cannot be doubted. And he cannot be denied. You know what's funny, guys? Every time I study these days, very few words are spoken. No one comes back and says, You can't tell me I'm a sinner. No one says, I doubt you're here. I don't believe you exist. Matter of fact, that light that penetrates us exposes us for who we really are. It's so powerful, guys. I want you to understand it. It's something we can't even comprehend yet. John, Jesus' best friend. No one was closer to Jesus on earth than John. He was called the beloved disciple. He was with every, everywhere Jesus went, John was there. When he let all the other apostles go, even Peter and James, John went with him. He turned over the care of his mother to John on earth. 
best friend. But when John sees him in eternity, as he truly is, he says, I fell on my face like a dead man. Now here's the incredible thing about that verse. The voice tense and mood of the, of, the, of the Greek words in there let us know that this is not just some formal response like you'd be bowing before the king. That in his state as a man, he's so overwhelmed by the incredible glory and majesty of God that it would be absolute blasphemy for him to stand. And he just falls. Because that's the response this deity deserves. But for the unbeliever, in that moment, something's going to happen. You're going to realize something. Jesus is exactly who he said he was. Uh, The person you may have doubted or dismissed or denied or even argued against, you can't do that anymore. He's standing right there. And there's a reality that sets on you greater than any other, and it is simply this, that you have rejected him. You have rejected him. See, you always saw him as just a man, a good teacher. But standing before you now is not a Judean teacher that can be dismissed. He's not a philosopher that's putting forth his ideas. He's not one of many. He is the one and only. And standing before you is not a suffering servant. It's the reigning king of the universe. And standing before you in that moment, you realize you're responsible to him. You're responsible to him. In other words, I'm answering to him. He owns it all. He owns me. It's his kingdom. It's his rule. He controls it, created it, all of it. But in that moment, there's another horrible realization. It's too late. Now, I hear people say all the time, if Jesus would just show up like that, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. How do we know? Jesus came to Israel. They had the Gospels, or they had the prophets. They had all of the Old Testament Scriptures. Everything pointed to Jesus Christ as being the Messiah. And what did they keep saying to Him? We want another sign. We want another sign. We want another sign. In other words, Jesus, continue to prove to us, we're not going to believe you till you do what we say. You mean you're looking at the sovereign of the universe, and you're saying... Me, your creation, will not bow to you until you do what I say. Even after that creator came, died, took your sin upon himself, took responsibility for all of our actions, made a way for us to be rescued, did everything necessary for us to be free of sin, death, the grave, to be with him in eternity, to make this day a celebration, He's done everything, and yet we say, we want more? No, you won't believe. He's done enough. If you hold that belief, saying if God would just do this, you fall into the category of the people who crucified Christ himself. Because they kept saying the same thing. Just do more. 
So it will not be a day of celebration for everyone. For believers it will be, but for unbelievers it will be a day of condemnation. So when we talk about the revelation of Jesus, it culminates there. Because you must understand, it's not just the revelation of Jesus. The, the text, as we read it, it says revelation of Jesus. You know what else it means? It also means the revelation from Jesus. Now I'm going to give you another word for revelation. Don't panic here. It's the word apocalypse. So this is the apocalypse from Jesus. Now we don't use the word today like they used it then. Apocalypse now means chaos. It means destruction. It means horrible events. Matter of fact, to give you an idea, I'm going to show my nerd here in a minute. You guys ready? In the DC universe, Superman's greatest enemy is who? Oh, my fellow nerds. God bless y'all. Hang in there. You DC fanatics. I'm disappointed, Braden. You knew that. You didn't answer very loudly with me. So, Apocalypse is the greatest enemy. Why? He's going to destroy the earth, destroy the universe, subject it to itself. If you wake up in the morning and your phone alerts you, there's been an apocalypse that is worldwide. I guarantee you, you're touching that app to find out what chaos has ensued the world. That's how we define it, but that is not how the Bible defines it. Matter of fact, here's a simple definition. It is the consummation of history. <coughs> Excuse me. It is the consummation of history. History, which simply means this, how history will end. That if you want to define apocalypse, that's the biblical definition of how history will end. Now, when we look at the book of Revelation, most of us think the word prophecy, not apocalypse. I need you to understand something. Hear me, that guys, there's no prophecy in Revelation. There's fulfillment of prophecy in Revelation. I want you to understand that. We're seeing the prophecies being fulfilled. So I want you to think of prophecy different than apocalypse. Prophecy is about the flow of history. It is how history has flown. It is how history has lived itself out. It is about history revolving and heading towards an end. But apocalypse is how it will end. Think of it this way. Prophecy is like a river that is flowing, and it's pooling at the end, which is apocalypse. It flows into it. So Revelation is about how it's going to end. And it all ends with what? The glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. The glorious return of our King in Revelation. But you must understand something, guys. We cannot separate the person from the prophecies. We cannot separate the person from the prophecies. All history is in the hand of Christ. He's controlling it. He's leading it. It's going to an end. It's going to an apocalypse. And it's all revolving about him. He's the center of it. If you take Jesus out of the prophecies, prophecies are pointless and meaningless. We're so obsessed with prophecy, but we must understand something. Prophecy that doesn't point to Jesus is prophecy that's wasting our time. Because revelation is the revelation of Jesus, from Jesus, about how Jesus is going to put a period on the end of history. That's what it's about. And that's where this is heading. Because you cannot remove him from it. Which leads us to our second point. It's very important. If, point two, if you focus upon him, when will never matter. If you focus on him, when will never matter. The apostles 
had a, con- a constant question of Jesus. Now, automatically, your Bible says you're automatically going to say to your mind, who's the greatest in the kingdom? They ask that a lot. And always at inappropriate times. Jesus announces their, his death, and they start fighting. Who's taking over? Who's the best? Who's going to get it? I mean, James and John had their own mother come and try to get, him, get, get the, the power from the other disciples. Literally. They asked it constantly. But you know there was a second question they asked? More than that one? As much as that one. Not more, but as much. You know what it was? Is it now? Is it now? Is it now that you're going to return the kingdom to Israel? Is it now Israel will be rescued from Rome? Is it now that the kingdom is taking its place? Is it now? Isn't it funny that's the same question we ask? More Christians when they approach Revelation are asking one question. When? When? When will this take place? They're more concerned about the date of his return than the one that is returning. And if we focus on when, we're going to miss two huge points of Revelation. Number one, the message that God is getting ready to tell us will never be lived out in our lives because he wants us to live with imminence. That he is Return is imminent, and it should be apparent in how we live every day. And second of all, without an imminent return, and without an imminent lifestyle, we'll lose our purpose. Because believe it or not, right before Jesus ascends, Jesus gives them a final answer. They gathered around him. He's getting ready. They're on the Mount of Olives. He's getting ready to ascend to heaven. Notice their question. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Seriously, guys. After all, I've taught you. One more time. God, is it now? When, God? When? Jesus lovingly looks at the boys and says one thing. Stop asking me when. I love what he says. It's not for you to know the times or the dates. The Father is set by his own authority. Hey, fellas, you're focused on the wrong thing. When's not going to get you there? You ask the wrong question, you're definitely going to get the wrong answer. He said, you're focusing on the wrong thing. You need to focus on me. Because you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That word witness, another word for it is martyr. That's where we get our word martyr from. There's coming a point in these men's lives that the reality of what they have seen and what they've experienced is absolutely so true. They cannot stop talking about it. Peter, when he's before the Sanhedrin, they tell him to stop talking about Jesus. They threaten him. They flog him, beat him with a whip. They bring him back in and says, stop talking. Peter looks at them and he goes, Whether it is a right or wrong to disobey you, we don't know. But here's what we do know. We have met the risen Lord, and we cannot stop talking about it. We're getting ready to be delivered something, guys. We're going to see pictures of the risen Lord. We're going to see Christ sharing imagery of himself and revealing to you who he is. Inviting you into new levels of intimacy. Inviting you to live different through his strength and his power. He's promising you power and he's doing it for a reason. Because he's returning. 
And there are people that are going to stand there. And the moment his foot steps down on this planet, time is done. There are no more lines. There's no more hope. It is finished. And those who haven't believed, who rejected him, their eyes will be opened in that moment. And they'll realize how wrong they were. But we have the privilege before that moment to throw them a lifeline. So when that day comes, they're standing with us celebrating instead of on their face weeping because of their rejection. We're being given a purpose greater than we can imagine. God himself is placing in the hands of his church his glory. Now I need to stop right here and say something very careful to you guys. Please listen to me. The most precious thing on this planet is the glory of God. That is where God shows himself as he is. If it is abused, misused, co-opted for any other purpose than his, he takes it back. In a few weeks, we're going to see churches that were handed the glory of God. <laughs> Two handled it well. Five did not. And by the end of the first century, here's Jesus coming and saying, well, one of them had lost his glory. He took their lampstand, his presence. The other four, he said, if you don't change, I'm putting you on the bench. And I will not be in your midst anymore. Church without Jesus is not only pointless, it is so empty and lifeless. Christ is putting Himself, His glory, into your hands over the next several months. Just like last year, I said, folks were talking about grace all year. We're talking about the glory of Jesus Christ this year. Are you ready to see the risen Lord? Would you bow your heads with me? Christ is unveiling himself to us over the next several months. We must be prepared for that. As he reveals himself to us, he is the risen Lord. He is the monarch and the king of the universe. He expects us to respond accordingly. We'll learn more about that as we go along. But we need to be prepared to say one thing. I'm ready to say yes. To the king. That sounds fun in an invitation. But before we even get started, because of who he is, he is the reigning monarch of the universe. He is the ah, creator, controller, sustainer. He is our father. He has showed us he loves us by dying for us. He has done everything necessary to restore what we destroyed. He deserves our yes.
So I'm going to ask you to take a step of faith today, guys, as believers and say this, whatever you show me, whatever you ask of me, the answer is yes. Can you say that to him today? Now, some of you are believers and you go, Brad, I couldn't say that. I want you to pray another prayer to him. Be honest. Say, Lord, I can't say that right now, but I want to. Would you show me why I can't say that? Allow me to give you what you deserve, all of me. As you reveal yourself, let my yes be yes and my no be no. There's another group in here that says, you know what, Brad? I don't care. A child of God cannot stand before the living king of the universe and say, I don't care. You have another decision to make, and that is this. You may not be his child. Matter of fact, Christ said on that day of judgment, there's going to be a whole group of people who thought they were Christians. And he looked them in the eye and he says, they tell them all the things they did. And he says, why do you call me Lord? And you don't do what I asked you. Obedience doesn't save you. Faith saves you. Grace saves you. Mercy saves you. But obedience is evidence of salvation. Because I am a Christian now, He's changed my character, and I love Him. Holy Spirit fills me, and not only do I want to obey Him, I have the power to do it now. Let's be honest. Some of you aren't believers. Oh, you may have prayed a prayer, you may attend church, you may have your list you follow, but the truth of the matter is, Christ has relatively made no difference in your life. You just come to church now. You may put on a good face here, but you're still the main, same mean person at home. You may treat other people's kids better here than you treat your own. You show more respect to other women in the church than you do your own spouse, men. Ladies, you may show other men in this church more respect than you show your husband. You can spout a bunch of facts about Jesus. You could do a whole lesson on it, but let's be honest, the reality of that intimacy in your life isn't there. Grace is something you teach about, not something you feast at. Mercy is for other people. You demand it, but you don't extend it a lot. Others are forced to forgive you, but you're very withholding of yours. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And you won't say yes to me. You can correct that this morning. How do I correct that? Realize that the Messiah that died for you, the suffering servant, was always the king. He just came like us. See, he never messed up. He never sinned. He never gave up his authority or his rights. He just came and did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. You had a death sentence over your head. You couldn't pay it. He died for it. And he's offering you life. Him coming out of the grave means that you now have the freedom to know you can be forgiven and you too can rise again. There's hope after death. But you have to come by admitting you're a sinner. 
You deserve what's hanging over your head, and he's your only hope. How do I do that? By just repeating what I said and meaning it. Say it with me. Say, dear Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I deserve what's over my head. The punishment, I deserve it. But you're my only hope. I trust in you and nothing else. Would you save me? Would you be my Lord? I'm saying yes to you. If you just prayed that prayer with me, you just made him your Savior. And you made him your Lord. Father, there are people who prayed today. There's people who are praying. Prepare us as we step into Revelation. Especially next week as we dive into, you have a very important message. A very important message. Things that soon must take place. You've written for that reason. You're revealing Jesus and what must take place. Prepare us for that, Jesus. In your name we pray. God's people said, amen.